Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's a common theme for players to go into the commentary or analysis business after they finish their playing careers. That's because they can provide certain insights that people that were on the outside looking in simply cannot provide. So this week on the World Soccer Talk Show, we're going to bring up a discussion that we had previously with Jim Beglin, who many of you will recognize his voice from Premier League broadcasts on the World Feed and also the Champions League broadcasts now with Paramount+. Plus. Obviously, Jim Beglin spent much of his playing career with Liverpool, also with Leeds, but now, obviously, he does uh, Premier League broadcast now that he retired a couple uh, couple decades ago. So in this talk, we go over things such as his playing career and what ultimately caused him to end his playing career, which, as you'll learn, is mainly due to injuries, and what got him into the commentating business and how it went from radio now to being one of the more recognizable co-commentators in the industry. So I'm going to pass it over to Past Kyle and his conversation with Jim Becklin, and I hope you all enjoy could you just give a brief rundown of your playing career? Obviously, most people will know from you from your time at Liverpool, but obviously that's not the only team you played for. So just a quick brief rundown of the teams you've played for and your, your career highlights, if you could. Yeah, well, it began really with me moving from my hometown, Waterford, in, in the Republic of Ireland, to Dublin. And I played for a Dublin team called Shamrock Rovers. I was then transferred across to Liverpool from there. Um I suffered an injury at Liverpool, which changed everything. And then I moved on to Leeds United in the hope that I could resurrect my career. Um, didn't quite work out. There were further injuries and I had loan spells at Blackburn Rovers and Plymouth Argyle. Um, and they were kind of fitness related to try and get me in, in a certain condition. Um, and of course, I, I played for my, my country 15 times as well before that injury. Um, so it was a short career but it had some good things in it. Yeah, and during your career, you said it was kind of injury-laden, and obviously now people know you from your work as a commentator. So when you're going through your career, is it ever a thought process of yours that that's what you want to do after your career, or is it something that you're only focusing on playing at that time? No, it's it's um, it was the last thing on, on my mind, really, um, going down the broadcasting route. I had um, suffered my injury, and then... <clears throat> More or less at the end of my my rehab, um, I was asked to do some local radio stuff in in Liverpool with Radio City, and that got me got me on the ladder uh, at some stage. But even then, I I didn't kind of think that down the line 
I would I would go into that world. I, I still thought that I could recover from my problems and and get on with my my career, even if it wasn't at the top level. Um, but then bit by bit, I started um, getting a call from one broadcaster and then maybe another. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, I, I had something presented to me as to whether I wanted to go down that route. And eventually I just seemed to kind of drift, drift down that, that way. Yeah, so people talk about commentating is something where you just kind of climb up the ladder more often than not. So what was your first position in the, the commentator world after you finished your playing career? Yeah, well, I I, um, I had struggled at, at Leeds. I, I had suffered a, a left leg injury, and then I ended up uh, having a knock-on injury on my right side, a, a weight-bearing injury, and I, I hurt my knee. And I, I kind of knew that this could be a problem, you know, a bigger problem than I first anticipated, and that I may not be able to, to continue my career. And that was the way it was. I started doing some commentary as well because I was – spending so much time on the sidelines for Radio Air in Leeds. And I can remember when it came to um, my retirement, the fact that I was going to have to pack in the game. I was sitting in Harold Wilkinson's office, the then manager at Leeds United. And he actually said to me, he said, what about a career in broadcasting? Because he'd, he'd heard some snippets of me on Radio Air. Um, he said, what about, what about that? And I said, well, I said, boss, I haven't really given it any thought. And he said, well, maybe you should. And it was after that, Kyle, that the, the, the phone started ringing and, um, and bit by bit, I, I started doing a little bit more. I did a lot of radio work and made a lot of my early mistakes and getting a feel for it all um, on the radio. And then um, my regional TV station, Granada Television in the northwest of, of, um, of England, they were basically inviting any recent retirees to... Um, to perform, to go to a game and send in little match reports. They had a, um, a soccer program right throughout the afternoon on a Saturday. So they sent me to Liverpool, Nottingham Forest. And I, um, I basically did all my little reporting and I, I had a good response to it. And on the Tuesday night, I found myself sitting in a studio. I didn't necessarily want to be there because... <laughs> Co-commentating or reporting was was always going to be my field, being on site, being in the stadium. So um, to find myself in a studio all of a sudden, they obviously felt I had a little little more to offer. So, yeah, I found myself in a studio. And then things just developed from there. I started getting phone call after phone call. And then I started making a commitment to one or two broadcasters and, and off I went. Yeah, flash forward a couple of years. And now most people know you from your calls on the Premier League and the Champions League. So... In the current moment, the 2021-22 season, how are things kind of unfolding for someone that is kind of responsible for calling the game and delivering the messages to people that are watching it? How's it how's it kind of unfolding in your eyes? Yeah, well, I, I'm still getting away with it. A lot of years have passed um, from from when I first started. Um, and it, I, I was thrown in at the deep end. I wasn't given any guidance whatsoever. I was just in, and that was it. And you either you know, swam or, or sank. Um, and, you know, I, I think I probably just about stayed afloat at that time. Um, and now I, I have, I have an experience behind me. Um, you know, back in the day, it, it's, I, I would still get the odd butterfly or two, you know, circling around my tummy for a big game. 
but it's it's not really a nervous thing anymore because you know what your job requires. I, I've basically got to call the game. So I, I'm quite comfortable with that. And in relation to co-commentary and punditry, being, being in the studio um, with the presenter, I, I like that and I admire that, the people who do it, and there's some great analysis. But I, I found my experience of that was that um, a lot of it is conjecture. There's a lot of ifs and buts. And I remember sitting there many a time thinking, oh, this isn't for me. I mean, they're asking these questions. And, you know, I thought some of them were a bit silly and just off the mark. And I thought, you know, all we're talking about is speculation here. Uh, and I didn't enjoy that. When you sit in a co-commentary position, what's happening down below you is fact. And you're putting your interpretation on the fact. Now, whether people disagree with you or not, that's another matter. But I always got... Um, more out of that. That was my vibe. That that was what I got off on, if you like. Um, and I felt mostly at home in, in those circumstances. And hence, I, I remember drifting away from the punditry side of things. And a producer in Ireland um, with the National Broadcaster actually said to me, that could damage your career, you know, doing what, what you're doing. But thankfully, it, it hasn't. And I've managed to, to carve out a career in co-commentary and basically carry on with my first love. I want to circle back to when you talked about getting nervous and getting butterflies. You, obviously, everyone's going to have that at the beginning of their career calling games, especially when you're on a, a live broadcast. Was there ever like a moment where it just kind of felt like the butterflies weren't there anymore? Or is it just something that you kind of gradually, they started slowly fading away? Yeah, I think it was bit by bit. Um, I, I remember, you know, a couple of seasons ago thinking, I'm, I'm not really even letting my mind go there now. I, I'm not I'm not entering the kind of the world of, of nervousness anymore because um in fact you know I, I'm not trying to say it's a good thing or a bad thing, but with me, um I, I think it's probably a, a good 10, 15 years ago. Um I, I kind of put that behind me. Um there there were points in the early part of my career where I was a little insecure on certain things and um maybe a little a little unsure and, and not the most confident, but I think I've always been like that. No matter what I've done in my life, I might start a little slowly, but once I get going and once I know what's expected of me, then you know I, I'll, I'll I'll be okay. And yeah, I I think it's obviously a good thing that the nerves have left me because I tend to just get on with it. But there's also a danger where you can slip into a world of of cockiness, of arrogance, and I've always been very careful not to. Not to do that. I mean, I've seen one or two other people, and I won't name anybody, go down, go down that route. But um, I've, I've always been a little careful that I don't stray too far away. Always try to keep your feet on the ground. I mean, any manager I had in my career always played a part in that anyway. So I think I was programmed to never let things um, get carried away. I think another thing that people in the journalism and communications world to keep an eye on is biases. And since you are the first former player we've talked to, something that I've always wondered personally is, how do commentators not err on a certain side of one team or another? And as a former Liverpool, former Leeds player, how do you avoid kind of favoring one team? Or is, is it, do you just kind of like uh, block out everything from your past and focus on the game at hand? Or is there other strategies that you might resort to? Um, I, I genuinely, um, when, when, I, when I sit down and put a microphone in my hand, I genuinely forget about who I played for. Now, even if I'm working on a Liverpool-Leeds game, I, I 
you know, maybe maybe not. That's not the best example. <laughs> Liverpool or or Leeds playing, um, then there's no bias. I mean, I get lots of stick from from Liverpool fans. I have done over the years because I've been objective in things I've said about them. Um, it's the most basic accusation you get. Um, everybody accuses you of some sort of bias. Yep. Uh, I I I I don't think they they understand what's what's really involved. I mean, you just have to call it. And if one team is doing better than another team, then so be it. Um, you call it that way. You're, you're, you're still going to get criticised. The, the, the one thing I'll say, Kyle, is that I'm, I'm very fortunate not to be starting my broadcasting career now when social media is, is, so, is so strong. And, uh, and you can end up in, um, and, and I have done, you can end up in a storm that you don't want to be in um, for saying the wrong thing. So, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm happy to. I, I actually get a kick out of it, even though there's a lot of abuse about and some of it's horrific. Um, I, I get a kick out of it now because it's a fan basically getting wound up in a moment because maybe I've said something that he thinks is inane. Um, and they just react and they, they get on their phones and they send you a disgusting message or whatever. And then it's... It's gone again. You know, 10 minutes later, they've calmed down and it's, it's all moved on. So I actually end up having a, having a laugh with it. Sometimes I'll, I'll, um, I'll highlight that on my, on my Twitter account and I'll, I'll try to, um, to belittle them a bit if I can. <laughs> yeah, I think fans especially get wound up when it's a, a bigger game. Um, someone that's had a pretty lengthy career in the industry, what are some of the biggest games or most important games that you've called? Maybe just even the most exciting games. It could have been a game that didn't have the most hype or draw coming into it, but then the actual game itself was an amazing game. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there have been many um, over the years. Um, the game that jumps out will always jump out at me um, was 2005 in the Champions League final when AC Milan went 3-0 up against Liverpool and everybody thought this was going to be a humiliation. I think uh, going in at halftime, I, I made a comment as to the effect that it's um, it's men against boys um, and this could be embarrassing. Um, and then we saw that change in the second half. The Dudek saves uh, from Shevchenko. Just an absolutely incredible night. How Not the best team in Europe. Liverpool won it. I mean, I, I've heard the likes of Jamie Carragher and Steven Gerrard say that. They, they'll admit to that. But Liverpool had the, the grit, the determination, the, the cojones to to find something and, and and get themselves back in the game and and that was quite incredible and that always stands out for me I think in terms of atmosphere I always go back to um, Barcelona Inter Nazionale um, in the semi-final um, second leg at the Camp Nou um, in 2010 when I think they had a 3-1 lead um, Inter from the first leg in Milan at San Siro and then they went to um, the camp now and it, it wasn't the nicest of games it was just a case of them spoiling the party stopping Barcelona from playing but the atmosphere that night was different to what I'd ever heard and I'd, I'd been there many many times at the camp now and this time was just the fervour was off the scale and I can remember when uh, Inter were successful. It was 3-2 on aggregate. They went through. And Jose Mourinho ran on the pitch at the end, supposedly, supposedly to applaud the Inter fans and their support. But he knew he was winding the whole of Catalonia up. He knew exactly what he was doing. 
And of course, Inter began celebrating because it was a huge progression for them. And um, and then I, I always remember that the, the Barcelona people put the sprinklers on <laughs> to stop the, uh, the celebrations. But I can just remember that night that because it was Mourinho and he was back in town, he was back at Barcelona. And, and there'd been a divide created by then. You know, he wasn't part of them anymore. And the atmosphere was just was just quite incredible. And I love that, the intensity of it that particular night. Everybody was on edge. And, um, and of course, Inter went on to win the Champions League. It's funny, I'm going to circle back to the 2005 Champions League final because I had the chance to talk to Derek Ray, who also called that game. And he said that he was already kind of coming up with plans and notes and little statistics for how big of a win it was going to be, the biggest win in Champions League final history. But as we saw, the game turned around its head in the second half in a pretty quick span of time. So as a, as a co-commentator, is it hard to call games that do have a quick pivot? Or is, do you ever want to focus on what could happen as opposed to what is happening in the moment? No, I, th- I think, again, I, I mean, I know, I know sometimes it's, it seems what we might say on a microphone is a bit crazy and off the mark. But there are games like that. That's, that's the world of football. Um, it's it's never what you expect. If if you go in thinking or planning that I'm going to say this because that's likely to happen, then it won't happen. Um, and and there are games that are terrible. You might have a terrible first half, and then you'll have an incredible second half, or vice versa. You can flip that, or you might have a complete change. You might have a very attritional tactical game in the first half, and you're calling it, and maybe changes of formation and you know, they're playing chess or whatever. And then you can have a second half where it just explodes. You get some mistakes and then the goals start going in. And it's so sometimes you just have to, you know, just have to go with the flow. And it is what it is. And, and some games are just crazy and take you that way. So I, I think that night in Istanbul was a case in point because I can remember the commentator I worked with, George Hamilton at RTE that night. Um, he was actually getting in touch with um, those back in Dublin, trying to find out, what the big numbers were. He had some of it researched, but he wanted a little bit more backing just in case that AC Milan took it on to another level. So you can never tell. Yep. Well, uh, Jim, I think we're going to jump into the show and tell portion. Now, like I said, I did ask you to bring in a, a couple of items. So I'll ask, uh, what's the first thing that you've got on hand today? Well, the first thing is that from me being a little kid, um, aspiring to the top, becoming a professional footballer. I maybe didn't think of that initially, but certainly as I grew my career, coming up through the ranks in Ireland, I, um, I began to think, you know, I might have a chance. And certainly when I got to my mid-teens um, and I was um, receiving some attention, um, and I think people thought that, you know, I had a chance. So I was hoping Dublin, Shamrock Rovers, would be my stepping stone to England. I was set to go to Arsenal, but they pulled out last minute. I ended up going to Liverpool and it couldn't have worked out any better because I, I went to the, the top club in Europe at the time. Um, and, you know, they were, they were winning leagues left, right and centre in, in England. And making the jump really from, from Irish football and then, you know, struggling to get into the first team at, at, at Liverpool. And it, and it was hard uh, because the competition was so, was so strong. Um, to get there, to feel a part of it, and then to to win things. And that's a League and Cup double I won in 1986. 
And I was hoping that that would be the start of, of great things for me. Um, and I could take it on from there. But within, I think, about seven months from, from, from that day at Wembley, when we got the FA Cup on top of the league, um, I had a, a big change in my, in my footballing career and my life. It's a little hard for me to really imagine what that's like because we imagine people going from the United States to Europe and it's such a big jump, but the jump from Ireland to England seems like a smaller jump. Is that a correct assumption to make? Or I'd imagine it's still a pretty big life-changing moment, but was it still hard to move from Ireland to England to further your uh, professional career? Well, I, I think in terms of friendliness and warmth um, it couldn't have been much better I think Liverpool is very similar to Dublin in fact many people refer to Liverpool as the capital of Ireland I mean there are an awful lot of of Irish in in Liverpool and I can remember um, people really trying to make me feel at home inviting me to Sunday lunch strangers people I didn't even know but I was a Liverpool player so they they'd go out of their way um, so all that part of it was good I had no problem settling in in terms of off the pitch activity but it, it was um, it was hard I, it, to 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 get through to that first team. You had to pretty much do an apprenticeship, spend time in the reserves, learn your trade, learn the Liverpool way. You know, very simple, but give and move, pass and move all the time, and and it was drilled into you uh, day after day in training, and, and until you knew your your positional responsibility as well. Um, it, it took a while. I mean, I was champing at the bit thinking that I deserve to be in the team by now. I'm up to speed. I know what I'm doing. I'd had enough time. Um, they, they groomed me. They started taking me to away games and they groomed me um, to, to feel comfortable um, within the squad um, with, with, with all those top players. And these were guys that I was watching on the television, you know, not long before when I was still in Ireland and, and I was in awe of them. And now all of a sudden, I'm, I'm amongst them. Um, and then, of course, you, you have to get used to the, um, the banter. There's a, there's a lot of banter and they can try and wear you down. And I, I realized after a while I, I could cope with that. It, was, it wasn't too serious. Um, and then I was, I was part of it and, and I'd, I'd made the jump. And yeah, I mean, once you, once you do make that jump, and they never stop kind of reminding you of the level you had to reach. I mean, the standards back then were, were hugely high, um, quite incredible. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm immensely proud to this day that I was able to, to live up to those standards for a while, at least. Yeah, the League and Cup double is uh, no uh, small achievement. Can you, what are some of like the highlights of that? Obviously, the, the Cup final is going to be one of them, but are there any league moments or anything building up to the Cup final that really stood out for you in that season? Yeah, well, towards the very end of that season, um, we had lost in the February, we lost a Merseyside derby at Anfield 2-0 to um, Everton. And we thought, oh, that's, you know, we've, we've kind of blown it now. But I can remember as well, once we, we got together on, on the Monday after that game, there was a kind of a, a collective um, will to give it one last go. You know, I, I remember we had a meeting and everybody was, was buying into it that Everton will slip up. So everything was dependent on Everton dropping points. And I remember we went to Leicester away and we won 2-0 and Everton lost 1-0 at Oxford that night. And... 
we knew because you could hear at Filbert Street, it's not the King Power back then, but Filbert Street at Leicester, we could hear all the Liverpool fans and you could hear the, the rumbling around the ground. Then it went into a, a big explosive cheer, joy, and um, because they, they told us that Everton were behind. So we then got back into first place in the table and we closed it out from there. And I can remember the, the final game at Stamford Bridge and we beat a good Chelsea side who were in the, the top six then at 1-0. And I was able to just flick one onto Kenny's chest, Kenny Dalgleish, and he volleyed it into the corner. So I, I have the assist for that. And, and that's a lovely moment on the way to that that too. Yeah, I'd assume that those two medals are the highlights of your, your playing career. Well, they are. And, and they came on the back of um, a silver medal I got for playing in a European Cup stroke Champions League final in 85. Obviously, it was Heisel and it was a terrible tragedy that particular night. But, um, but that, that gave me more of a flavour for it. And I think the fact that we, we'd lost out then just increased the determination and the commitment within the squad to make sure that we, we end up with something the following season. And to end up with a double was, um, I, I was, yeah, I was, I was so overjoyed. I, I, I mean, I, I, I can never get back to the feeling I had back then. It was quite incredible. Yeah. Well, Jim, is there any uh, other item that you have on hand today? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it's an unusual one, and it's, it's, it was given to me. I didn't go chasing this mm-hmm. at the time, but this is the, um, the broken leg and the repair I had, the operation that night, and that was the beginning of it all. And um, I think Evertonians and sometimes in America, I've had a lot of stick from them. They think that I'm bitter and I'm moaning about this all the time. I'm not. <laughs> I, I had to put that away, Kyle. I had to compartmentalize all of that. Um, and I, if, if you're bitter, then it's just going to tear you up. That, that's all it does. So I had to put all that bitterness away and get on with it. And I love going to Goodison. I love going there as a player and I love, I love going there as a broadcaster. Um, but what happened that night, it's not me moaning, it's a fact. I, I broke my leg in a Merseyside derby. Nothing I can do about that now. And um, yeah, it happened and it, it, it changed my life. And, and that kind of threw me into that, that broadcasting world. And then, of course, having, having won the medals as a player, I, okay, you're not going to get medals as a co-commentator, but, um, but I still could aspire to um, the big games. That, you know, when I kind of went to broadcasters initially, I was the number two. I would get all the maybe terrible games in Eastern Europe and have to do all the travel and that kind of thing. But, you know, bit by bit, I was learning my trade. And uh, I always remember working for RTE Radio, USA 94. Um, And that's Giant Stadium, Ireland, Italy. And we weren't favourites. Ireland weren't favourites for that. Italy were were favourites. And we were told that Giant Stadium would be full of Italians. 80% of it will be Italy. In fact, 80% of it was, was Irish, was green that night. And, and that is, my, that is my, my best memory, really, of, of commentating on all the Ireland games that I did over the years. And I commentated on, on many. And that was quite an incredible night. And it's a shame we couldn't have enjoyed it with a, a few pints. We had to go off to Washington. Um, <laughs> later on that night. So we, we had another game to watch the next day. Circling back to the, the broken leg, uh, I only stopped playing soccer when I was 16 or 17 years old. And I, I had a few broken bones, but they would, I mean, for me, I was never going to go professional. I never really like 
hurt me emotionally because that was never uh, my future goal. But as someone who's playing professionally and you know that a broken bone is going to sideline you for, for months at a time, is it disheartening to know that you might lose your spot or you're just not going to be able to have the opportunity that was presented to you before? Yeah, I, I, um, I can remember um, asking one of the surgeons um, the next day. They'd worked on me overnight and I asked him, you know, how bad is it? And he, he was honest and he said, it's very bad. I had um, a double compound, communated, I think is the term, which means shattered as uh, the medical term. So, um, so it was going to be a long time and I knew that, but I, I still had, I've always had a determination, Kyle. You know, I'm, I may not be the most confident person in the world, but I've always had a determination um, that I will find a way through and, and that I will make the best possible use of, of what's happened. I, I will turn it into a positive. And that's the way I am. I'm a glass half full person. And um, initially, yeah, I, I thought, oh, my goodness, that this could be the end. But bit by bit, you know, I began to get fitter and fitter. And, and I did get back on my feet. I got back playing for the reserves, never for the first team again, unfortunately. Um, and, on, and at that time, um, you get knock on injuries if you've had a serious one and then, you know, my right knee, um, I tore the cartilage badly um, and they can replace kidneys, livers, lungs, hearts, you name it. And um, a little bit of grizzle in your knee, cartilage, they, they can't really do anything about. So I was playing in pain for the last 18 months. I played in pain and I was in a lot of pain. Uh, I could do straight stuff, but I couldn't do twisting and turning. And I had to be careful in, in, days before games that I didn't go down that route. And, and I, knew, I knew the writing was on the wall. And, and if I'm totally honest, I knew, you know, it, 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 I, I was amazed I actually passed the medical at Leeds. I can remember a, a lady a consultant, she was rotating my knee and how I didn't hit the ceiling because of the pain. But, uh, but I managed to stay quiet, got through it and, um, yeah, went on. But no, you, you go through, when you get a serious injury like that as well, you go through every emotion in the book. You go through the self-pity, you go through everything. I mean, you're, you, you can't do the most basic of things, you know, that you can't even get in the bath because you've got a you know, big plaster on your legs. So, um, yeah, I, I, I went through the lot. I thought I handled it well at the time, but looking back now, knowing, knowing things now and my experience, I didn't. And I probably could have done with help. But the whole culture back then was about being a man, get on with it. And I did. And, and I probably wish I had a little bit of help at that time. Yeah. And then the World Cup, was that a, was that a ticket or was that a press pass and you were there as a commentator? I, I was there as a, the, the radio commentator. Um, okay. Yeah. Giant Stadium. There was a guy called Gabriel Egan, who was the radio commentator for RTE in Ireland. And I had, he'd interviewed me after a few Ireland games. And he recommended me to the station to say that, look, he might have a, you know, a chance of, of broadcasting. Um, so he put my name forward. And then I, I ended up, while I was still trying to cling on to a career, I ended up going to Italia 90. Um, and I covered all the Ireland games with him. And then it, it just all developed from there. And um, of course, the competitor in me, um, I, I have to aspire to, to better things. So... I moved to RTE Television in 96, and then I worked the World Cup final in 98. I worked the World Cup final in 2002. And, and 
you know, I, I, I'm proud of, of that too. And I, I've taken it on from there. I've worked more fines, you know, since then. But they were in the early days. And I was just delighted then that I achieved a level where people felt they could rely on me and that I could, I could do the job and, and not let anybody down. And, uh, and I've always aspired to that ever since. If you're going to do something, do it well. Do it as well as you can and put as much work into it as you can. And I, I learned an awful lot from particularly the commentators I worked with and how they went about things and they would make copious notes. And I thought, well, okay, I can do that on the analytical side of things. Um, and I can just, sometimes you never get a chance to look down. You just call the game and you don't even look down. But now and again, if you've got a stolid game, it's not much is happening, it's boring. You can look down and maybe you've, you've got an analytical point that could be made and I can use that. And then we can maybe have a little bit of a, a chit chat through it. So you pick up little bits um, over the years and, and you learn the, the discipline that, that, that goes with, with the job. At the time we're recording this, we're coming up on the November international break, and some fans obviously prefer the club side of the game, some fans prefer the international side, but as a commentator, do you have a preference? You've had the opportunity to call World Cup finals, but you've also had the chance to call uh, Champions League finals. So for you, is, is do you prefer to call the club games, or do you prefer the international side of things? Um, the club. I, okay. I, I'll be totally honest with you now. I think um, it, it's been helped. Um you know, I've worked on quite a few friendlies over the years, and they're not the most exciting um, games. But I think the um, the way they've they've changed things in Europe now with the League of Nations, and I think that's helped because I think it's made it more competitive. I think you get better games. Um, and look, I, I've I've had some absolutely wonderful uh, nights with with Ireland, particularly, um, and indeed once you're in World Cup finals and and some great games. And I've always enjoyed those tournaments, but um, no, it's it's the club football that that I love. And and even, and I don't mind saying this, even when I was a player at Liverpool, the professionalism that existed around Liverpool Football Club was far greater than the professionalism that existed around the Republic of Ireland national team. Um, you know, it, it was just a better setup. People people were much more switched on, and. Um, I, I'm sure things have improved in, in that regard now for, for the current player. But, um, but yeah, I, I would always go with, with the, um, the club games um, because that's what I spend most of my life working on. Yeah, I wrap up with this, Jim. Our, our audience is obviously primarily an American audience, but we still have the chance to hear you uh, call your Champions League games and a number of your Premier League games. So where can people find your commentary uh, just throughout the different competitions that you cover? Well, well, certainly for the Premier League, um, I think any of the um, countries around the world that have the, the rights, um, then they can take the English-speaking commentary. Of course, it's not just me. There are lots and lots of us that do it. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so no matter where you go, I mean, lots of people come up to me and say, are you working for NBC? No, they, they just take our, our feed. Right. Uh, are you working for, you know, be in sport, Middle East? No, I'm not. Are you working for Optus Australia? No, I'm not. Um, it's, yeah, all, all the broadcasters can take the English speaking. Um, and that's why, you know, my, my profile in this country, in the UK, probably dropped since I, I finished with ITV. But I think it's it's gone up around the world. Yep. Um, and sorry, what, what was the second part to that, Kyle? Well, I know you also cover the Champions League games. Is that specifically for, for CBS or is that uh, also a world feed? 
Yeah, well, I, it's it's not a world feed. I believe it's it's for CBS. Now, whether CBS have sold it on elsewhere or not, I, I don't know about that. But um, but yeah, I when I when I go to work on a Champions League game, I I believe it's for CBS in the USA. Yep. Yep. Well. Jim, I think uh, I think we're going to wrap it up there. I really appreciate you coming on and telling all those the stories and just uh, how your career has gone from a, an injury-laden player career into one of the better uh, co-commentators out there. Oh, it's, it's very kind of you. It's, um, it's been a pleasure to, to chat with you too. All right, well, Jim, I wish you the best going forward. And you, Kyle. All right, take care. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.